This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Hello, here's another episode where we have to put a little introduction here at the beginning. So, first things first, we have a new podcast name, as you probably noticed. So if you type in concepts, it's going to be even harder to find. The reason? As our great guest, Mr. Beat, suggested, we are very difficult to find even if you know our names. So, we decided that it'd be better to come up with something a bit more selective that would be easier to find. So, sorry for those who are confused as to where Concepts Podcast has gone. We're still here, and apparently we're still using the same intro for now. So, we are pros and concepts, working on two levels. One, we have pros come on to talk about concepts. And two, uh, we talk about the pros and cons of stuff a fair bit, I like to think. So, we decided to lean into that. Next... You now should have the ability to review podcasts on Spotify. The Giants have finally given us what we want, and you can write reviews there. Hopefully it's super easy. Hopefully it's available now. If not, it should roll out in the next couple of days. But please leave a review. We have a great audience. Obviously, you guys are all amazing, but we'd like to grow a little bit more so we could do even cooler things. If you want to let us know the sort of things you enjoy or what you want to see more of, you can always email us, and our email is conceptswithphilandsteve at gmail.com. Mouthful, I know, but you can find it on our website. And uh, yeah, so hopefully you enjoy the show, and I have to add a little side note in the middle there, which you'll hear soon enough. Thanks again. All right, welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. There it is. We've got an arrangement where we finally figured out how to introduce our podcast, like 27 episodes in, roughly. All right, so today, Steve, what are we talking about? We're talking about just world hypothesis Mm -hmm. or just world fallacy, as they say. Yeah, I don't really know why. I mean... It is a hypothesis, I guess, because you're speculating on what the world is, but it seems more like a fallacy to me, but let's define it. So the definition I have is the cognitive bias that assumes that people get what they deserve, that actions will have morally fair and fitting consequences for the actor. This belief generally implies the existence of cosmic justice, destiny, divine providence, deserts, stability, and or order. So you can see the kind of personalities that will be more appealing to this. Yeah, kind of like a magical thinking, like karma in a way. Or the phrase, everything happens for a reason, which is kind of like this fatalistic kind of thing. Oh, actually, I have five phrases that come from this. Okay. What are your five phrases that come from this fallacy? I'm pulling a lot of this from Wikipedia, and I should also put in the front that I think everyone has this to some degree. It's varying degrees, but we'll see. So the phrases are, you get what's coming to you. What goes around comes around. Chickens coming home to roost. Everything happens for a reason, as you said. And you reap what you sow. Okay, you hear these things a lot, yeah. Yeah, they're common phrases. And so, common, but are they true? Dun, dun, dun. I mean, that's a sticky question. This whole thing is very, as they say, problematic. Because there's upsides and downsides to it. It can lead to a lot of shitty behavior and thoughts, but it can also be very empowering. So it's pretty clear that it's not entirely accurate to reality. Because like, as somebody who, and this is going to seem very self-righteous, but as somebody who tries to do the right thing and be honest and upfront in a lot of my dealings, I got to say that it comes back to bite you in the ass fairly frequently. And in ways where if you weren't as forthcoming, you would have been fine and nobody probably would have known the difference. So for example, I, I'll openly admit now, I got COVID a couple weeks ago after Halloween. <gasps> and it you lasted. COVID? No. Yeah, you know this. And know <laughs> it lasted that. for like five days. It wasn't the worst cold I've had. I'm fully vaxxed, but I could have done without it, you know. But I was going to go to <laughs> Quebec again. But then I thought, you know, the doctor says I'm clear by Friday. We were supposed to leave like I think on the Tuesday before that. And so I said, hey, we're not coming until a little bit later until the doctor clears me to leave and says that I'm okay and not contagious anymore and just gave the host an update which resulted in her basically having kind of a freak out and retracting our ability to stay there even though we had left things there because we were there before and we intended to go back 
So this whole mess basically could have been avoided had I just not said anything and waited a little bit longer just to be safe. But then instead I decided to be upfront. I mean, it's more ethical, obviously, but it's just like, uh, it was just mostly superstition that stopped her from working with us because there's almost no chance that we were going to have enough interaction with her, supposing I was even still contagious to actually impact her. But despite that, she was not having it. Right. So this is not like the just world hypothesis. This sounds a little bit more like it's alternative. The nice guys finished last. This is more an example of how in daily life we can see that this is not the case, which is actually some research has looked at to some degree where they have alternative explanations and seeing how people engage with these ideas. Because like it's clear to most people that things don't always work out. You can do the best of things and there's examples all throughout the day that will show that this is not really the case. But first, I guess I could say that we could look at the research that starts with Melvin J. Lerner starting in 1966. And apparently he's the father of a lot of research into this particular bias, this cognitive bias and how the research continues on to this day. So the preliminary research that they talked about were a group of 72 women were watching a confederate, so somebody that's hired by the experiment to act as a participant but isn't a real participant. So the women watching do not know this. They think he's an actual person being shocked. So this person's being shocked continually throughout the experiment, and they had, I think, different conditions where some were more violently shocked, or at least they appeared to be in more pain, and some in less pain. And while these women started watching it, they were originally kind of shocked by watching the guy getting shocked, but eventually they came to reject and devalue the participant. And the more suffering... That the person endured, the more they rejected and devalued the person. The only way that they changed this was by telling them that the person being shocked was there for money, that they were being paid to be shocked. And it says explicitly that they were no longer devalued, but that implies that they still reject the person for having chosen to do this. Wow, that's that's fascinating. So by seeing somebody getting shocked, we think they must be a bad person because bad things are happening to them and therefore we like them less? We try to justify their behavior or their situation, I guess. And there's a number of theories as to why that might be. But we basically see it, I mean, I experienced it firsthand with COVID because one of my relatives was sick the week before. We had two events on the weekend for Halloween. Most people are vaccinated. I mean, the vast majority are. And they didn't mention that he was feeling ill earlier before the parties and he decided to go out in the parties anyway. He did not get tested. So then I don't know if this is where it came from. It could have come from anybody else, honestly. But that particular person was going and saying that because I had gone to Toronto a week before those events, that I must have got it there and that I was the one that brought it. So this actually not to air like any dirty laundry in that way and not to cast any blame because like I still don't know that I got that from that person specifically, but it does kind of buy into the examples that are given as to why people might go about these things. So they're attributing your sickness to like, well, he went to Toronto. Yes. He took a risk. Yes. I wouldn't do that. He deserves to be sick because he took a risk. So it's almost like everything happens for a reason. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I see this philosophy that the dark side of this is that it's kind of a pernicious, unethical philosophy because it has a lot of the stances like God won't give you anything that you can't handle kind of angle coming over these things. So like if you get cancer or you get murdered, then I suppose you deserved it because you did these things that kind of courted it. One of the quotes here from learners uh, research was, quote, individuals experience less personal vulnerability because they do not believe they have done anything to deserve or cause negative outcomes, end quote. So this is a form of the self-serving bias, which is a common habit of people taking credit for positive events or outcomes, but blaming outside factors for negative events. We did a whole episode on that. Yeah, the actor observer bias was linked in the show notes. But to me, it just seemed like people were saying like, oh, look, he did these things, even though I was recognized as being one of the more responsible people throughout the entire pandemic, if not being called overly cautious, in fact. But these people saw me getting sick and thought, well... I haven't done anything to deserve this. I haven't done that exact behavior. Therefore, I am innocent of this. And I think we're all kind of guilty of this behavior because even me, when the panic was starting, people would get sick and you'd be like, okay, well, what were they doing? How did they get sick? Like, were they running around going to parties and stuff or were they doing these other things? So they're running around going to parties. This actually conforms to one of the possible explanations for why people do this so often, which is the veridical judgment. Veridical means that it coincides with reality. So that means that the judgment is actually valid. So the hypothesis is that judgments of victims are accurate. So like, for example, what kind of moron allows themselves to be shocked? For me, going to Toronto, people would say, that's too risky of a behavior. Obviously, he deserves to get this. I don't go to Toronto, therefore, I'm not going to get it. It's kind of like a self-soothing approach to this thing. But the rebuttal to this particular theory is that they did follow up studies where they derided only the person who had suffered from the shocks, but not the person who agreed to the shocks, but didn't actually suffer from them, didn't actually end up being shocked. So 
that obviously kind of contradicts because both groups agreed to be shocked. And if we're judging them for having agreed to this, then we should judge them both equally. But since one of them didn't get shocked and they didn't get judged, it seems to be just to kind of, I guess, absolve ourselves of responsibility in some ways, you know? I feel like this is more so kind of an evolutionarily developed thing where it's like just distancing ourselves from contagion or things that might be dangerous and or risky people and look bad things are happening to those people they must have bad sanitary precautions and therefore we need to stay away from these type of people you know i I feel like a lot of it comes from actual more practical evolutionary concerns kind of like where morality comes from it's a useful shorthand, but it's completely illogical. I mean, there's stories throughout history of like people who have been turned down because they're unlucky, but then they end up being like a huge boon for the group. Oh, yeah. It doesn't make it true or right, but it sounds a lot like how morality was developed. Yeah, perhaps. You know, like where shame and blame comes from, you know. Although not useful <laughs> psychologically these days, evolutionarily, they've developed alongside one another. I don't know if you've heard that joke about the interviewer who has a stack of resumes on his desk and his assistant sees him pick up the top half of the stack and toss in the trash. And the assistant asks him why he did it. And the interviewer says, I don't want to hire any unlucky people. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, as if luck is a tangible thing that we can actually observe or is like a static principle and stuff. You want to talk about your definition of luck? I guess both of our definitions, really. Oh, yeah. I have a lot of experience with the concept of luck. I could probably do a whole episode on it. But working in gambling addiction, a lot of people who struggle with their gambling will use the concept of luck. Like, I, oh, I feel lucky today or not lucky today as they're leaving after not winning. And I'm like thinking, what is this thing people are referring to? What is this concept of luck? And it turns out apparently people, it's more of like a, a magical thing for people. But I've never really looked at it this way. I've looked at it more in terms of luck as probability was kind of my way of looking at it, your way of looking at it as well. And so if I were to say I am unlucky, it's pretty much equivalent to saying the odds didn't work out in my favor this time, you know, versus there wasn't some kind of magical energy on my side. Well, I mean, there's a whole like gambler's fallacy too that past events like on a roulette table, if it keeps hitting red, then they think that the chances of black goes up with every red that hits, but that's not how it works ever. But I think to me, luck is also kind of odd because we see people as lucky who narrowly avoided a bad event. (laughs) But it's like... Are you really lucky if you're close to having a bad event happen to begin with? Like you almost got in a car accident and you swerved away from it. Or you almost, I don't know, got like a negative lottery where you would have lost a lot of money, but instead it hit the next person and not you. It's like, are you actually lucky because you came close? (laughs) You're considered lucky for having been close to bad outcomes. It seems kind of counterintuitive in some ways. I also think some of this comes from evolutionary stuff too. I mean, all of it does. Yeah, it's all psychology. But there would be some benefit to looking at it that way because in nature... Things are not usually like random, like a slot machine that has a random number generator in it. And so it's like quite an artificial thing, this this randomness. We don't deal with it very often. I mean, the universe has some level of chaos and we get into physics, but that's not practical. But in terms of our actual dealings with random objects, probably very narrow. You go to a slot machine, though, it's this artificially constructed randomness. I see what you're saying, and perhaps I'm going to make a pedantic point, but I don't think that's true. I think everything we do is always random. There's some level of predictability, like if I pour hot coffee on my lap, I'm going to get burned. But in like a grander scope, like whether this project of yours works out or not, or whether you end up being successful in life, or whether anything goes according to plan, like the whole phrase of like, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, because... <laughs> There's so much randomness. I I guess what you're saying is like we don't interact with such a direct route between complete randomness, right? Complete randomness. So even though it's a random number generator, which is based on like an algorithm, it's so close to complete randomness that any attempt to find patterns is irrelevant by the human eye. I mean, there's certain technologies. I don't know if you know about this, but like when iTunes originally came out with the iPod Shuffle and all that, when they had a truly random song player, people would complain about it not being random because it would occasionally play the next song in order of an album or the same song twice in a row and so people thought that the, the randomness was broken but we actually prefer pseudo randomness which is like where it disables the ability for that sort of thing to happen because we don't for some reason believe that that's likely or a possible outcome when out of like a, several hundred songs i guess right 
I guess we're not too familiar with dealing with randomness, so it confuses us, and we try to find patterns where they don't exist. But going back to, you were lucky because you got a near win. Maybe that can be attributed to like uh, fishing people who like almost caught a really large fish, which in some level is telling them that they're close, that they're kind of around the right spot. They're not completely off the mark. So you're lucky kind of because you are close to something good happening in a way. Does that make sense? No, I don't usually see that. I mean, you have a lot more experience with people actually gambling, but from what I've observed, if you're close to something good and you don't get it, that's unlucky. If you're close to something bad and you don't get bad outcome, then that's lucky. To win something good is lucky. To come very close to winning but not winning is often, in many people's eyes, worse than not having any chance at all. Like The whole thing about silver medal, people regard it as worse than not winning any medal at all. And bronze actually being happier than silver because I guess they they didn't think they were going to win, but it got something in the end. Mm, right. So maybe the word luck only applies to when you are winning, but it's the near wins that actually keep people hooked. Yes. Perhaps even more than the wins. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe the word luck isn't correct, but there's like a dopamine response that happens there that it's like, oh, you almost got it. Keep trying. You're close, which in randomness, the logic doesn't mean anything. Yeah. That's the gambler's fallacy. Yeah. In nature, getting close means something so that it's not as random in nature as a slot machine, even though there's an element of randomness in everything, as you said. So I think looking at it that way, but we're getting a little bit far from the concept again. Are we? Yeah. I mean, to some degree. Yeah. We're talking about luck. Okay. <laughs> I can go back to Lerner's stance, the researcher that is probably the primary researcher in a lot of this. He has some interesting takes, I thought. So to him, a just world is one in which actions and conditions have predictable, appropriate consequences. And that belief in an unjust world has been linked to increased self-handicapping, criminality, defense coping, anger, and perceived future risk. So, I mean, it's kind of like just general stability. And obviously, these stances appeal much more to more conservative minds because you want order, you want justice, you want everything to be kind of more cut and dry and predictable, because in that setting, you can actually work hard and you can get further in life and you will be more likely to invest in the future because the future will be there. So it makes sense to have this in some ways. Like I said, like if you don't believe in your efforts paying off, then you're not going to put any effort in. And that kind of is a self-fulfilling prophecy then, right? But also by working really hard, that doesn't guarantee success. It just at least gives you a ticket in the lottery to potentially win. Okay. So I see the connection between this and randomness. So this concept is kind of the opposite of randomness. Everything happens for a reason is the opposite of random. Random, nothing happens for a reason. It's a cold, dark universe full of meaninglessness and a void of whatever happens is random. And so (laughs) it sounds quite dark. And obviously both extremes are wrong. Right. It's somewhere in the middle. Both extremes. Yeah. Slot machines are this level of randomness that it's like dysfunctional and it doesn't... Well, no. Slot machines aren't even truly random though. I mean, you know about the whole like programming where like they'll follow you specifically. Well, they're as random as we can produce by an algorithm. All right, so at this point, Steve is actually correct, but he's gone far into the counselor mode where he doesn't actually want to outright call me wrong. So instead, here, I am just going to introduce it here because I don't want this falsehood to survive. I cut out a chunk of what I just said here because it's just, it's all wrong. So I'm going to save myself the embarrassment, but call myself out. So I looked into it. I basically am saying that they're going to change the odds of winning for a single individual mid-play. That doesn't happen maybe in certain regions but most places it's fully illegal to do that because i mean then it's not a fair game obviously Uh, some places require board approval to change their odds whereas other places just need to do it at will but they still can't do it for a single individual it would have to be overnight or something they decide broadly for everybody Though Steve is still correct that they will send people over to give you vouchers or free drinks to give you that dopamine hit that they want you coming back. So (laughs) I should say here that Steve actually is a professional who works in a casino. He actually gave presentations to other professionals on how slot machines work, and yet he's not bringing that up. He didn't want me to lose face, but it ended up making me have to openly lose face here. So yes, again, I am wrong. (laughs) I shoot a little too quick from the hip. And uh, yet again, uh, this is a correction I needed to insert. So thanks again, Steve, for letting me have this opportunity. That's not my understanding of how machines work, given that it's all determined by a random number generator. Now, what you're referring to sounds like it's a loyalty card. 
And that's the marketing layer, which is on top of, so the random number generator is the slot machine's outcome, which is as close to human randomness as we can produce. Supposing you're doing it anonymously without a loyalty card, yes. Yeah, well, and even with a loyalty card, that doesn't affect the actual outcome. But what it does affect is a host coming over and consoling you and giving you some, like, buffet bonuses and, like, reward cash. Uh... I don't think that's true. They're not always random. The loyalty card, I've at least watched enough stuff on that, that like if they're legally allowed to, they will do that. They will change the outcome based on what you're doing. But if they're not legally allowed to, in this, depending on the state or whatever, then you're probably correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm basing this off of my understanding of the legalities of gambling in Ontario specifically. Yeah. We have better consumer protection laws in a lot of ways. Yes. And so it's very kind of like specific, but I don't even know how we got to this. You were talking about like true randomness. <laughs> yes. So true randomness, as much as we can produce in a slot machine, completely dysfunctional when it comes to everyday life. It hijacks our evolutionary sense that we are close to some reward. Now, the exact opposite of that, everything happens for a reason, is too structured and neglects a level of randomness that exists in reality. So yes. somewhere in the middle is where kind of my definition of luck. Yeah, that meshes with what Lerner's stance was. He goes on to say that basically it's functional because it is a sort of contract. It functions this belief as a contract with the world regarding the consequences of behavior. So like I said, you can engage in more future behavior than goal-driven behavior. But as he says here, quote, but some people are confronted daily with evidence that the world is not just. People suffer without apparent cause. Lerner explained that people use strategies, rational or irrational, to eliminate threats to their beliefs in a just world. Rational strategies include accepting the reality of injustice, trying to prevent injustice or provide restitution, and accepting one's own limitations. Non-rational strategies include denial, withdrawal, and reinterpretation of the event, end quote. To me, this actually plays a lot with religious belief as well, because to me, dealing with death as an atheist, you often kind of have to reach for religious language because you don't really have it there. But like, he's in a better place. Like, are they? How do we know they just don't exist anymore? To me, that's the non-rational denial of just death being the end or that God isn't watching out for us and that random things can happen. Religion kind of is a soothing salve for these things as well. What do you think? Yeah, and therefore, I wouldn't really say that phrase to someone unless they've already said it themselves, because it can be very imposing. Like if somebody's like grieving a loss and you're like, oh, well, he's in a better place. Like that's, that's <laughs> completely not, <laughs> that's not good. Yeah. Yeah. Eh, don't worry about it. He's, uh, he's good. So there's actually another bit of research that I found that I remembered when doing this, which is not directly related to the Wikipedia page because a lot of that was just pulled from there. So the Monopoly experiments, have you heard about these where they rigged the game so that one person would win? No, but I'm going to predict that people would like the person that won more. I don't know if that's the case. It's not quite what they're looking at. Okay, what'd they look at? They flipped a coin at the beginning, and they randomly assigned one person of two people to be the rich participant, and the other one was the poor participant. So they rigged the game from the start. The rich participant had two times the starting money, and every time they passed go, they got two times the amount of money there as well. Not only that, though, they also were able to roll two dice instead of one when moving. So they have more money, more mobility, and they continually get more money on top of that. It's more about the behaviors and the perspectives. It was studying empathy and empathy gap. So what do you think was the outcome between these? What kind of behaviors do you expect to see from either the poor or the rich? Oh, more aggression and boldness from the people who are winning and more timidity and like self-doubt from the people who are not winning. Very much along those lines. So what they showed was the rich people showed more nonverbal displays of dominance and victory, like putting their mm -hmm. fists up above their head, like victory kind of stance. They were more loud when they were moving their pieces. So they'd like slam it down every time they were counting on the board. So just being more visible, I guess, or noticeable. They ate more pretzels. <laughs> they had a bowl of pretzels on the table and the oh, poor nice. person didn't eat nearly as many. And they were more rude and more likely to showcase how well they were doing. Oh, I got so much money. I can't. It takes me so long to find oh. the Right bills. They would start saying stuff like that. I can relate to this so perfectly from playing board games. And I've even noticed it during the process of playing a game where it'll be roller coastering. Like at one part of the game, it'll be really low and, and you'll feel kind of like withdrawn and like mildly depressed or something. And then other parts of the game, you start like pulling ahead and winning and then you're just like gloating it over everyone. I think you can relate to me doing that a few times. I think it depends on the game because the more random the game is, the more more shitty this behavior is because i mean it's not great to begin with but like among friends you can kind of chide them a little bit but it depends on how seriously they take the game and what the game is but if it's completely random like i think we've talked about this before to know if a game is truly random or at least how random it is try to lose on purpose because if you can't then it's basically all decided by randomness 
What I found interesting about this experiment, just to close that loop before we move on, is that during the debrief, when they were talking to the rich players about how they won, the rich players actually talked about strategy and how they felt they earned their success, which was pretty ridiculous. And they found that researchers interpreted the outcomes as like compassion and empathy going down and entitlement and self-interest going up. And they also found that in other studies, rich people were more likely to moralize greed as being good and self-interest as being favorable slash moral, which if you're familiar with Ayn Rand, Anne Rand, she's exactly that stance pretty much. And it's so morally corrupt in my opinion. Yes. No, it makes a lot of sense. That's from a TEDx talk, but I looked at some of the papers and I found the originals, which I thought was kind of funny. So he, he talks about a number of experiments. There's a couple of funnier ones that I'll talk in a little more detail and then just read the abstract. But they took rich and poor members from the community and brought them into the lab, gave them $10 in the lab. This is, I believe, in the US. People that made fifteen dollars to $25,000 or less gave 44% more of their money than those who had made one hundred fifty dollars to $200,000 a year. So usually when we hear this, poor people give a higher percentage of money than rich people. Usually when I heard that, I used to assume that that $1 for a poor person is obviously going to be more than a person who has a million dollars. So if you have $10 and you give $1, then that's 10% of your net worth, whereas that's not anywhere close to that for a millionaire. But that's not the case in this example because we removed their own money and gave them $10, and the poor people still gave more. Funnier still, and also just more morally corrupt, was that in another experiment, they had a jar of candy in the waiting room that was explicitly told to the participants that it was for kids with developmental disabilities for a nearby lab, yet people still took the candy and those who self-identified as feeling rich took twice as much. Wow. <laughs> it's just like, oh, really? This is for disabled kids that like, I don't need to take this because I can easily buy myself candy. Eh, fuck it. Let's just take it. Who cares? That's quite strange. Okay. Well, okay, well, if you think that's strange, then here's the abstract, which talks about like six different studies mixed in. So, quote, in studies one and two, upper class individuals were more likely to break the law while driving relative to lower class individuals. In follow up laboratory studies, upper class individuals were more likely to exhibit unethical decision making tendencies, take valued goods from others, lie in negotiation and cheat to increase their chances of winning a prize. And they endorsed unethical behavior at work more than lower class individuals. So that's seven studies. So no <laughs> basically, way. if you're rich, you feel entitled to do whatever the hell you want and that's a problem this is like the monopoly study on scale like in real life yeah and I found the driving one to be more interesting because there was a crosswalk with a light. And I think like legally you're supposed to stop if anybody is there. But the nicer the car, I think it was the nicest category of car had just shy, like 45%, just shy of 50% chance of ignoring them and continuing driving regardless. And the lowest category, the worst cars had a almost, I think, a 0% chance of breaking the law. They all stopped. <laughs> What? And so I keep that in mind when I'm crossing the road, partially to like make sure that I assert myself <laughs> when the car is particularly nice. This is fascinating. Yeah. 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 Oh, nice car. They must be rich and selfish. Um, they might be. And I'm going to assert my own rights here because they might feel that they're better than me because I'm on foot and they're in a nice BMW. Right. But doesn't this mindset also kind of counterproductive in a way? Like if you believe this, it can make money be seen as something that's bad and that all rich people are just selfish and it's therefore kind of glorifying being broke. The goal is not to demonize rich people, but to recognize that rich people are more likely to be unethical. It's basically just an extension of the Protestant work ethic. If you have a lot of money, then you got to be chosen by God. You got to be a good person because God wouldn't otherwise have blessed you. And that's obviously garbage. Like, that's not how this works. If you're born rich, you're no more just than a person who was born in abject poverty. It's absolutely nothing to do with your own merits, unless you want to go like genetic essentialism. That's a really nice connection there. The Protestant work ethic, which we've talked about a few different times, and their whole spirituality or faith was based on this exact thing, that the wealthier people are chosen and their wealth is evidence of their place in heaven, really. Yeah, exactly that. And that's one of the kind of dominant cultures in the founding of America. It seemed like it correlated with Protestantism and authoritarianism, though the authoritarianism, one of the studies that they were referencing, it was basically saying that if you're more of an authoritarianist, then if you have the just wealth fallacy, it's more soothing for you. Whereas if you're not, you're low on authoritarianism, then even if you believe in the just wealth fallacy, it's less soothing for you when bad things happen for some reason. That was kind of interesting finding. Let me just double check that that's what it said. Among high authoritarians, participants felt much less at risk if they believed in a just world than if they did not. Among low authoritarians, however, this belief and perceived risk were unrelated. Mm. So you think this has something to do with power. So like, how do you think powerless people would subscribe to this? Do you think they'd justify their powerlessness or do you think they would be more willing to see the world as more nuanced? 
That's a very big question. Depend on the individual, of course. Yeah, just take a stab. I mean, okay, this is not your area of expertise, but so like you're just a lay person making a guess here, so don't feel too much pressure. Right, right. I'm trying to think. Everything happens for a reason. What kind of group of people would say that the most? Yeah, I, w- I would probably say more empowered people would say that. Yeah, I think being powerless, you would be more prone to not say that. Oh, uh, you know, I, I can't make the bills this month. Everything happens for a reason, though. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that, there are some truly terrible quotes I found in here, like really dark shit because of these stances. Right. Like what? Well, I mean, they're mixed in with my notes. I'll define it later. Teasing us with these truly cringeworthy quotes. Yeah. Uh, don't worry. Like I've, I'm crossing out the stuff as we say it. So like I've got all this stuff to bless you with and value with my wisdom that I found on Wikipedia. Empower. I, honestly, I, I could see it going either way because obviously if you're doing well, then you want to think, I deserve this. But also with poverty and powerlessness, religiosity tends to go up. And if your religion talks about God giving you your just desserts, then I would see it also having a high stance there. So I saw it as more like likely to be like a U-shaped curve. But apparently in countries where the majority of inhabitants are powerless, the belief in a just world tends to be weaker than in other countries, which according to the Wikipedia, this supports the theory of just world hypothesis because powerless people have had more personal and societal experiences that establish just how wrong that belief is. Like they worked extremely hard and then a flood came along and destroyed everything they did. Like how did they deserve that? Right, yeah. So this makes a lot of sense what I was saying before. It's like when your house has been destroyed and you can't can't pay the bills when everything's taken away from you, which I talk to a lot of people in hard situations. You don't hear a lot of, oh, well, everything happens for a reason. No. And you do hear it sometimes, but it's probably more common among empowered groups. Yeah. As you're saying, mm, I don't know though. Cause like everything happens for a reason. No, that seems to be popular among people who may be empowered, but are like having a, a downturn. Cause like when things have been not working out for me, people have said that to me and I'm just like, what are you talking about? Suffering can be completely pointless and could lead to nothing. I'm still going to keep working. Obviously like I don't believe in free will yet. I still keep taking actions. So like, it's not going to change much, but I just find that kind of magical thinking to be irksome at best. But like, you also see it like, and this is the point I didn't close off for COVID was that you see people saying that like i'm a good person with a good immune system i'll be fine from the virus which is just like in other words i don't deserve a bad outcome so i'm not gonna get it it's just denial of reality essentially Mm. yeah i can see this reinforcing classism as in like saying like oh he's poor because he just doesn't work hard enough or he's just not a good enough person and yeah and there's a lot of what did you use that word the other day around the poors? Oh, yeah. I've come across people referring to poor people as the poors, like dehumanizing as much as possible almost. At least not calling them vermin yet, but that's definitely a step in that direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of class stuff that's quite relevant to this conversation here. Yeah. Well, sort of. Because it's like, if you see when it comes to Thomas Sowell, more conservative economist, has this theory about middleman minorities. And he talks about how they are often hated in areas because they are doing well by working extremely hard. But then the local group, the local community that's not doing well, sees them prospering and thinks that's not fair. They don't deserve that, blah, blah, blah. So I guess you could see this also being like, they don't like it possibly because it's it's defying their just world hypothesis, I guess, maybe. They see themselves as good and just and hardworking, though probably not as hardworking as the people that are doing particularly well in this particular context. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm falling victim to the fallacy right there. But anyway, they see the group doing well and they actually despise them for doing well because they see them as being leeches on the community despite actually offering value. Okay. And that's the just world hypothesis at work as well in what you're saying there. How do you see that? Because if these people are doing well, but they don't deserve it, therefore they shouldn't be doing as well because the world should be just. That's the people that aren't doing well looking at that and thinking it's unfair. Whereas that kind of falls in the other way because if you were to subscribe in just world hypothesis, you would think that person's doing well, therefore they must deserve it. I mean, I guess like they were saying, like in line with the theory, powerless people tend to see that it's not quite in their control. And so it's not quite so just unless we want to be like, again, cosmic karma Mm. kind of stuff. Right, right. right. I mean, think about it. In some ways, it's kind of like The Secret, which is the book, The Secret, that putting out your intention to the universe, not necessarily taking any action at all, but the universe will come back with what you need. That's a form of idealism, which is the philosophical stance mm. that reality is indistinguishable or inseparable from human perception and understanding, and that reality is a mental construct closely connected to ideas. So, put in simpler terms, if enough people believe something, that will change reality. Reality doesn't exist without a human observer, is kind of what this stance is taking, which is taken to the extreme in this short story by Borges called Talan Akbar Orbis 
Tertius, which is about his world where these guys make this encyclopedia, but they add in extra tidbits about this fake society. And eventually enough people get this fake encyclopedia that enough people believe in this world. And at the end of the story, that world is the reality where ideas do shape reality. Geniusly written, this guy, everything he does is just amazing. Because in it, he even has like one of those kind of theological debates that you would come across for like Christians in the Middle Ages, where like reality doesn't mesh with their theology. So then they have to find ways to warp reality through logical arguments, or at least semi-logical arguments to make it fit. So in this world, they talk about a guy who's walking along a road, and he has 10 gold coins. He drops the gold coins and loses them. And then he walks away and doesn't recognize that he lost them. So he goes back and tries to find them and he finds six coins. And another person found two, another person found one. So that's only nine. But the whole thing is like a logical argument where they're saying that there doesn't need to be 10 coins because those coins ceased to exist as soon as his perception was off of them. And so the fact that anybody found anything is actually like the glory of God almost. I can't remember exactly the point, but it was just ridiculous what? because they didn't believe in object permanence. It's all about ideas. Oh, wow. But like in the same way, again, that's to the extreme. Where I'm tying this into is that to believe that the world is just is kind of a form of idealism that like we want to impose our morality on like an uncaring universe to say like we obviously get what we deserve because it's somehow keeping some sort of cosmic score right and, and we're saying that we're kind of like the atheists in the church here in a way saying literally and figuratively <laughs> yeah like the world is random it's a cold and uncaring place where random things happen and you can find some patterns here and there but it's all meaningless you said that somebody thought your definition of luck made you kind of autistic which is kind of funny but like right. do you want to talk about what i i mean i don't know if you follow what i was saying when i said this but what i call secular karma do you remember that whole idea yeah and that's something we subscribe to as karma as like a very practical thing and not this idealistic kind of energy that that you absorb or some cosmic scorekeeping, but accountant, yes, yeah. cosmic accountant. But if you do good things, you don't deserve good results, but you may increase the odds that good things will happen. You may. doesn't guarantee it though. So it's looking at karma as probability. Like you put out positive energy and then you're more likely to make someone's day and then they might give you something or it reinforces a positive attitude, which makes you see more positivity around you. And there's like a kind of a snowballing effect of positive events that can happen, but it's more of a... Like reputation. Yeah. It doesn't guarantee good things will happen, but it increases the odds that if they could happen or the situations are presented, then it increases the odds that you'll be able to see the positivity or kind of take opportunities that you wouldn't have been able to see if you were kind of more in a negative state. Yeah. It's kind of like the whole definition of luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Yes. The preparation needs to be there. If you have nothing prepared, then you can't seize the opportunity when it comes along. I, I agree with what you're saying. I don't like the term of energy, but I guess you kind of meant more like attitude when you said that. Oh, when I say positive energy, I mean like not, not just this cosmic energy. Yeah, but this You meant like, attitude, it seemed. Yeah, yeah positive attitude, yeah. Yeah, because it's not like the whole woo-woo, we're not meaning right. to accidentally dip into that territory. But No fake positivity here. To me, I think it's, if you're a good person, then your reputation, especially if you're in a similar area, but if you're generally a good person and trustworthy, more people are going to want to recommend working with you, continue working with you, bring you good things. If you're a shithead, then people are not going to do that, and it'll come back to bite you in the ass. If you're in a chance where, like, it's like the thing where, like, a cop stops you, and it was because, I don't know, something happened outside of your control, and you had to swerve, and they thought you were doing something illegal. If you were a dick all the time in that area, then there's a chance that person might actually know who you are and not take leeway or listen to you. Yes. But if <laughs> you were a good person all the time, then that person could be like, oh, yeah, I've heard like of the good things you do. Like, yeah, I believe that you didn't do that on purpose. Yeah. It's just luck, basically. Yeah, that is dumb luck in the social aspect of it. I think our definition of karma and luck, an irrational sense, fits with this other popular phrase, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Generally, yeah. I mean, there are times when like using vinegar makes sense, like being a dick and being unreasonable can be beneficial in, say, I guess, negotiations on a corporate level or fighting for what you need from your company. But mm. generally speaking, yes, Gen I think that's the better philosophy. Yeah, generally yeah. speaking. So there actually are further rebuts to this theory. The first one I talked about was the veridical judgment that you're actually judging them accurately, which has been debunked. The other one is guilt reduction. And this one I considered in terms of my exposure to COVID because it seemed to me that the person who kept pointing out that I was in Toronto might feel some level of guilt, maybe subconsciously, that possibly they were the cause of it. But 
apparently that's actually not supported. <laughs> that's not supported enough in the research, at least. They still deride anybody that was suffering, even when the observer wasn't implicated in the suffering. So like those women watching the person getting shocked, they had no control or contribution to this person getting shocked. So they're not responsible, yet they still judge them. So it doesn't seem to have a very strong support of guilt reduction. Another final, well, two, I guess, is discomfort alleviation. So when you empathize with the people that are suffering, you might feel discomfort and feel bad about it. And so the theory is that you're trying to blame them for their own outcomes, these own bad things, so you can feel less bad feelings about their suffering because they deserved it. Mm. It's like a person that's purposely hitting themselves with a hammer. You're not going to feel bad for them. And so you don't have that empathetic pain from watching them. Right. Studies showed that victim derogation does not suppress subsequent helping activity. I mean, this is, again, a microcosm. This is a very small sample of people in a single lab because it doesn't mesh with a lot of the other research. But it was interesting that despite them blaming the victim, they still empathized to some degree and were willing to help them even when they were blaming them for it. Right. I mean, that's that sounds like human behavior. You can blame someone and help them at the same time. It's not helpful. Are you serious? I, I hear it all the time. Sometimes if you're a good person, yeah. But like a lot of people who see themselves as good people would say, no, they did it themselves. I'm not helping them. Why would I do that? They did it to themselves. So here's a fun fact. Psychopathy has been linked to the lack of just world maintaining strategies. Mm -hmm. So that's some credence to the guilt part, because if you lack empathy or lack guilt, then you're not going to feel like you need to have a just world strategy to reinforce that. Right. Okay. I'm still on the victim blaming, but we can come back to that. The victim blaming, I can elaborate further. I found where I missed earlier, but I wanted to point out that they have a just world scale that I found and you can take the test yourself. But I mean, I have a kind of chip on my shoulder as like seeing myself as an underdog, which is based on a bunch of observable factors. That's probably some people will scoff at that, but whatever. <laughs> but studying arts in university, I studied at University of Waterloo, which is much more math and engineering focused. But even people in the sciences would look down on me because I was studying an arts degree and they acted like I was too stupid to be able to be in in any other departments or that I was just put here as this is all I could get. And they constantly saw that as my own undoing, I guess, or my own fault, or they assumed that I didn't want to be there. I can somewhat relate to that too. Yeah. It's like, if you were smart enough, then you would have taken engineering, obviously. Yeah, I guess it's not anything to do with whether I enjoy that or want it or not. So this is going to be some content warning. It's going to be a bit darker from here on out for these examples. So, okay. First one, actually, maybe I'll use the, the most heaviest last. So, okay. Bullying. This was counterintuitive as well. High just world beliefs led to higher anti-bullying beliefs, strangely. And they found that this was more protective for kids in school. And I guess my interpretation of that is that if you're in school, you're kind of powerless. So if you believe that people get what's coming to them, you see that bully is a jerk, then you can bear through more pain and suffering until you get out of that powerless situation, aka school, because you believe that that person's going to have some bad outcomes in the future. May not be true, but at least it's kind of, like I said, a, a soothing kind of belief. In terms of illness, people were more likely to blame people for that, including indigestion, pneumonia, and stomach cancer. Though they found that deriding them was actually higher for those that suffered from severe illness, except for with cancer. For some reason, cancer didn't bring around the same kind of blaming beliefs. Unless it's lung cancer. I mean, there's still some blame there, but I think it's less than like other right. ones for some reason, which is odd, you would think. But they didn't break it down by cancer. The one that they blamed them the absolute most, and this actually, again, ties back to some themes you can see with religion, was with AIDS victims. AIDS victims were the most blamed for their outcome, and obviously because like there's a lot of moralizing around sex, especially since it is more common in gay men. There's a lot of ways that these people could particularly demonize and not want to help them. Right. And this makes a lot of sense why you'd find a lot of that in this area, as I was saying before, in terms of evolution and, and contagion and morality as a kind of barrier to contagion. Yeah. And then completely historical and not necessarily helpful. It doesn't help to shame people out of behaviors. This is more of a sociological take on it than a psychological one. Yeah. Yeah. For poverty, there was actually a strong belief in just world is associated with blaming the poor. So if you had a strong belief in it, you would blame the poor more often. But if you have a weak belief in the just world hypothesis, then you would be more likely and willing to identify external causes for poverty, such as world economic systems, war, exploitation, systemic issues, basically. And that obviously makes a lot more sense because like that whole monopoly thing, if you start off doing better, then you just think that you are better. And again, this goes back to my whole theory about we have a lot of skill and a lot of talent that is being completely squandered by not enabling people to start off on good footing. And by handicapping people from the start, we could have like the next genius that would have invented something that would save the lives of millions or billions of people. And yet they may not get the chance because they're just struggling to survive. So to me, I think we want to equip people with the best they can have. 
whether they deserve it or not, I guess, because even if you're selfish, it's better to have a society with enabled people that can do more things than to have one where it's so deceivingly distributed that majority of people can't get a starting chance to even try to use their talents. Right. I can see how this idea goes into policy of universal basic income, which is something that we've talked about talking about, but we haven't quite went there yet. Yeah, exactly. Like, cause I don't really get it because it's called universal basic income. So it's universal. Everyone gets it. And it's the same amount for everybody. Everyone gets a thousand dollars. But if you're a billionaire, a thousand dollars is nothing. It's basically like you taking a single breath, you're going to make that much money. Whereas for a poor person, a thousand dollars could be life changing for them. And so if we give it out equally to all without any qualifications, this will least brings that basement up a little bit so that people can have some room to exercise more creativity because like as we've seen even in the pandemic people didn't stop being productive some people did because of depression and other influences but a lot of people made things that they saw as frivolous because again internalized capitalism teaches us that it is like a lot of people made a lot of interesting music and art and songs and things that people actually enjoyed to consume but is not as valued unless you're one of the top winners in that whole winner take all setting right yeah, yeah, like knitting, for example, which may not be seen as a commodity, but maybe it is. And a friend of yours seems to be doing that very well. I mean, crafting in general is useful, even if we have machines to do that. Like, what if you go to war with the place that makes all your shit? Like, that's kind of what we have got a cold war with China at the moment. They make all of the world stuff or a good chunk of it. So it's having these things, even if it's less efficient and more expensive, but higher quality, like it still would be worth it. Like made in America used to mean something. I mean, it still kind of does mean something, but it's less and less. And also you have to do research to see if it's even made in America because they got legislation where it's like 90% of it was done in like Vietnam or China. Then the pieces were all shipped over to the US and they were just put together or like a stamp or like the bare minimum was done so that he could legally say made in America. And it's like, these kind of games don't help your argument, dudes. Like they just make it so that that washes down that label. Because if we think made in America could just mean assembled in America, then that doesn't really instill the same confidence, does it? Mm, yeah, assembled in America, yeah. Or designed in America. <laughs> uh, like, great, amazing. Outsource as many of those jobs as possible to help those poor countries. Is that what you're doing? Anyway, there's self-blame. So... Apparently, an early paper by Dr. Ronnie Janoff Bowman found that rape victims often blame their own behavior, but not their own characteristics for their victimization. It was hypothesized that this may be because blaming one's own behavior, behavior specifically, makes an event more controllable. So they wanted to not blame themselves as an inherent, intrinsic, stable quality with themselves, but they were more willing to see it as something they had done. But I mean, I understand that soothing quality of that, but rape and domestic violence were the darker things that I put to the last year was that they showed that women were blamed in most cases. And the only time that we were really willing, and this is in both for all the rape cases and the domestic violence cases, the only time that women were not blamed for the domestic violence was when the man was more relationally distant. So he was blamed when he hit a female acquaintance. But if it was his wife, people were more willing to blame her because she's sticking around. What are you doing there? The whole blaming the victim in that mm, that way, right? Like, yes. what did she do to, to deserve it? The experiments that I came across was very disturbing, was that they had a story about a woman going on a date. In the one situation, the woman came home, dropped off, no problems. The other situation, the man forced himself on her, and yeah. So... In that context, you would think that both women would seem to be equally to blame for the outcome, which is not much at all because the behaviors are the exact same. But in the right. rape case, she was blamed for the rape because of her actions leading up to it. Whereas clearly, if the other case didn't get blamed, then like just because there was the lack of the negative outcome, she should still be blamed if she was being very whatever it is that people think that women do to deserve it. Yeah. Or they could just both not be blamed. Yeah. Yeah. And so because the one had a bad outcome, they blamed her for it, whereas the other one, no bad outcome, same behavior, no blame, which doesn't follow, right? It's kind of stupid. There's no logic to that, yeah. And so victim blaming as kind of a just world hypothesis that something bad happened to that person, they must have done something to deserve it because everything happens for a reason, you know, and that completely the logic does not follow at all, especially in those cases, yeah. You were doing some research. What did you find? Anything on top of this stuff? Um, I think we cover pretty much all of it. Then I was going to point out that whole thing I'm very torn about because actually there was a distinction that I'm going to close off with. So I was torn because to not have this belief is to have a limiting belief, right? Like if you think that your behaviors and actions are not going to do anything good for you because of like your skin color, your sexual orientation, or just your economic status, if you believe that, then you're not going to try. And if you're not going to try, then you have no lottery ticket in the game of life to move forward unless you just get like an off chance plucked out of obscurity. But that goes down dramatically if you have no skills, right? So like we have to keep trying regardless of whether it's true. 
true or not. And I think, though, we need to think about that in ourselves. But when looking at other people, we need to be very aware that there are tons of other factors, other third variables that can come along. Like you can keep trying business again and again and failing again and again. But it could be a business model that ends up being like the richest model in the world for like, I don't know, Amazon, for instance, or YouTube, for example. YouTube was a perfect example. There was another company that did the exact same thing, but just a few years earlier, the tech wasn't there. It failed. Was that their fault? I mean, maybe they misgaged the state of the market, but it was a good idea to begin with. It was just a little bit too early. And so that's luck, right? They didn't know that. The distinction that's made in the Wikipedia, because like when looking at other people, I think we should give them more leeway and more, as we've talked about before, compassion and empathy. But the Wikipedia they talked about, an especially fruitful distinction is between the belief in a just world for the self, personal, and the belief in the just world for others, general, and that these distinct beliefs are differentially associated with positive mental health. So I think what they're trying to say, which was not directly put, was believing in this for yourself is fruitful and healthy, but not believing so strictly in other people is also healthy because you're not blaming people for the situation and you'll still be more pro-social. You'll help people, but you'll also take actions to help yourself. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, because believing good things happen to good people and other people leads to a lot of things like victim blaming. But for yourself, it can actually motivate you to do more good things because you think, well... I'm going to have good things happen if I put out that good positivity into the world. But it can also, couldn't it lead to more disappointment if it doesn't? Perhaps. I mean, like I said, if you don't believe in it's a limiting belief, you're not going to take efforts. But you're going to fail. But we don't believe it and we take efforts. I kind of believe it for myself. Like I have doubts in it because I keep working really hard and things aren't necessarily working out as I was hoping for. But if I stopped believing that my efforts can change that, then I would be screwed. It would be even worse to stop believing in it. Hmm. I guess we can keep trying without having to believe in the just world hypothesis for ourselves, though. Like, and our definition of luck covers that. It covers that you do all you can to increase the odds. Our stance is like the middle ground for this. So I'm saying you have a taste of it. Obviously, I'm not fully believing that I'm going to be just as rich as I deserve because I work hard. That I know is false. And no. maybe I will be, maybe I won't be. Yes. And I always, I guess, sorry that comes as depressing. I think about continually is this guy, it was a boomer and his dad was like a silent generation or the greatest generation and they always saw their dad who felt down on himself and like a failure because he never ended up being able to become rich. He was never very successful. And the person writing this, the boomer, was talking about how this is actually really sad because historical events happened, like the Great Depression and two world wars. Like it was not this guy's fault for not becoming rich. And we need to accept that that's a potential outcome. But despite that, we need to keep trying as like you and I talked about, like that middle ground. Yeah. So it's a self-compassion when it doesn't go well. So you can recognize the situational factors. So there's some nuance there. You're not just black yes. and white, just yeah. world. And so that leads to self-compassion if it doesn't work out. Like for example, Example, like if our business endeavors don't work out, I'm not sitting there beating myself up like I'm such a terrible person. Like there's certain things that you would evaluate and learn from, but doing it from a self-compassionate point of view, which is very much different than a strict just world hypothesis, which there's not a lot of compassion in that. Yeah, there is if you cleave it between the self and the world. Because I think even if we look at like single events, that's not the case. Because like the whole everything happens for a reason. God doesn't give you anything more than you can handle. These all kind of are still arguments for like individual events will fail. You're not going to succeed at every single one. But this whole stance is that in the long run, your efforts will be seen and smiled upon. That's still in line with what we're talking about, even though it's a bit more cosmic and woo-woo. And also, I wanted to touch on something that we we're not going to get into because it's a bit long. But we haven't talked at all about like the whole like, intergenerational stance about like how boomers typically view the younger generations as like not starting their lives or being adolescents for having not started buying houses and having kids until much later than they did. Like this obviously plays out a lot in our society still, and I don't see it going anywhere. But it's at least good to understand. Yes. Yeah. Millennials are not bad because they can't buy a house. There. Got it. Yeah, they're bad for other. <laughs> reasons indulgence yeah they're bad for other reasons not because the real estate market yeah to be clear we're both millennials <laughs> anyway i don't have anything else to say and i assume you're also cashed out yep good to go all right thanks for tuning in and we hope to see you next time take care not responding ignoring me just like you ignore your wife and daughter for this podcast